Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley i hope you're well wherever you're listening we continue to build up our um, big stock of international listeners. Ed gets in touch, says, I'm 28 years old and I've been living in Hanoi since 2015 and I listen to every episode of the Redbox podcast while playing FIFA in the evening. I really enjoy the content and find it fascinating listening to a wide range of views. I particularly find your episodes on focus groups interesting as it helps me keep in touch with my English roots. So there we are. Uh, thank you very much to that. Ed Blackwell in Hanoi. If you are somewhere glamorous, it could be around the world or maybe closer to home in the UK. Get in touch with me. Email me matt.chorley at times.radio. We'll give you a mention on the podcast. And we might even get you on the radio to play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? If you think you're quite good at quizzes and you can answer 10 questions, uh, 10 general knowledge questions, all uh, not even really loosely related to politics, uh, you can become our show's Prime Minister. If you want to enter that, matt.cholly at times.radio. Just send me your name and your number. Right, coming up, it's Wednesday. No PMQs this week, though, because of uh, the Queen's speech debate. Uh, some big news coming out from Boris Johnson. Uh, in his common statement. But we thought on the podcast we would bring you disunited kingdom, politics from the four corners of the UK as the dust settles on the elections last week. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's Crampon. It's Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. If there's any pings in the background, I assume it's because you, uh, David Cameron's messaging you to tell you you're on the radio. <laughs> It'll be really good to meet up when, when we can. Uh, what do, uh, Having finally got in touch with him 56 times, he I hope he's on a good contract, 56 times he messaged a minister to try and get the government to back uh, his Greens Hill scheme. What did you make of the messages, uh, reading them, all the love DC Elbow bumps, foot taps, I'm very free was probably one of my favourite ones. What did you make of it all, Alice? I'm very free was the most tragic, I felt. You just thought this was a man who'd been prime minister, who'd been voting again, who'd had the coalition, who had a full timetable, who probably had endless people working out which trains, planes, automobiles he was going on. And then he's just sitting there in his shepherd's hut doing nothing. And 
I mean, I, I know that, you know, you, you shouldn't feel too sorry for him, but you do, don't you? And you just can't bear it. I couldn't. Um, so I think that was the hardest one. The lol always makes me laugh because he always got it wrong, didn't he? And he's, he's yeah. actually quite a sweet texter in a way because he doesn't do it like the rest of us do it, does he? He's like, um, he, he sort of takes it more sincerely. There are no real jokes. It's, it's, it's quite earnest, his texting. It is, it is all of it. So do you feel sorry for him, Robert? Uh, no, uh, well, a little bit. It reminds me, of, we all get those uh, those emails from PRs trying to flog us some dodgy survey or product or something, and they always start off, you know, have you got time for a quick call? It's very kind of supplicatory, and his, all his, all his uh, texts are sort of just a quick call, just a quick word, can you fit me in? Basically, knowing that he's talking to people who are infinitely busier than he is, and he's he's being a bit of a, it, it's, it's, a it's a hassle. You know, and it's so, and he's. I mean, I'm embarrassed because he's sort of embarrassed. The tone of it, yes. And I suppose that that's the thing is is that there is something. I mean, it's it's sort of borderline David Brent going back into the office with his dog and just sort of hanging around and you know who wants to go for a drink and uh, yeah. and all of that. And eventually, somebody takes pity on him and says, "Okay, I'll go." You know, it's Matt Hancock who says, "Fine, I'll go for a drink with you." Um, uh, but it's the way the tables have turned, and yeah, and also Michael Gove was not his best friend by the end, was he? I mean, that he was the man that stabbed him in the back. So that the fact that he's now having to go to him and sort of grovel is depressing for him. It must be, it must be unbelievably difficult. But at the same time, he's also being told he's you know unbelievably lazy. When in fact, you see those texts and you think he wasn't being lazy. He was trying pretty hard, wasn't he? <laughs> but at the, but at the same time, we have to remember that he's doing it because he's getting a, a, a shed load of money from Greensill uh, in order. To, I mean, he's working, isn't he? Mm. That's the thing, and I suppose that's where the desperation sort of starts coming in. Is that basically, yes. basically what we know is his big payday was sort of like dust crumbling in his fingers, and unless yes. he got his, essentially, you're right, Michael Gove, who he'd fallen out with and wasn't really on speaking terms with, Rishi Sunak, who was. Uh, a new MP who mm. re- didn't even go along with backing Remain for him in 2015. Uh, and mm. suddenly the tables have turned and he's there begging them for Not because he necessarily thought this was a good idea for the country, uh, but because it, yeah, there was a payday riding on it. And that's where it all feels a bit desperate. You know, um, uh, when he texts yeah. Sheridan Westlake, I mean, I remember when Sheridan Westlake was sort of Eric Pickles bag carrier in 2008. <laughs> He's been knocking around in politics for yonks. He, um, and uh, the fact that, you know, A, he's one of the great survivors and is still in Downing Street. The fact that David Cameron's had a text him saying, DC here, could you give me a quick call? There's a looming yeah. problem you can help solve. You yeah. can help solve. Can you help me, Sheridan? Uh, because otherwise my money's going to go down the toilet. It's that quick call thing. I mean, we've all done that when we've been in a position of supplication to somebody and you're basically begging. And that's the sort of language you use. <laughs> and that wouldn't matter you know if it I mean? wasn't for him, was it? I mean, that, the problem is that if it was just because he really genuinely, selflessly wanted to help this company, but it is the money that in the end matters, doesn't it? Because you feel, well, it is self-interested. It's, you know, it's I want a lot of money and I still want the pool in the garden. And I, you know, I've already got three houses, but I quite like some more. And that, that's what's going to stick with people mm. in the end, isn't and it? It's- Exactly, and it's embarrassing to the rest of us because we, I don't know about you, Alice and Matt, I'm sure you, we, I spend quite a lot of my time sort of basically defending the democratic process and defending politicians and saying actually they're all, they tend to be, they are good people. And then uh, when something like this comes up, you think, why am I bothering? Maybe everyone's right to be cynical and sceptical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You um, thought, well, dear, you know. Because he could have been, you know, if it had come out, and maybe he does also do this, but if he was lobbying on behalf of the Alzheimer's charity that he's part of, or 
um, the National Citizen Service that he's part of, or he was genuinely lobbying the government because he didn't think they should cut international aid, then fine, you know, for the greater or, good or, or whatever, because he thought it was good a, for the country. Or even lobbying for a company that was any good. <laughs> <laughs> And now, do, I suppose that's a fundamental thing. Is that maybe we could laugh about this because the, the you know, uh, spoiler alert, in case you don't know how this story ends, but um, he ended up with no money. The company goes bust <laughs> and it didn't work. And maybe that's why this Sleaze story in particular hasn't really stuck. Because if David Cameron, Boris Johnson's old mate, had gone off with wheelbarrowfuls of cash, then it would be a much sort of sexier story, uh, Alice. Yes, in a way, it's more of a tragedy, isn't it? But it's... Um... I still think it does stick in the end. I think the problem is it's the accumulation that it was like with MPs' expenses when we didn't care and didn't care and then suddenly everyone did, is that yeah. in the end people will care about this stuff. They will look at it and think, what are we doing and why did we allow people to do this? And, you know, even with, it's all the way up to the Prime Minister um, that people just felt they needed more money when they were in politics. And they always say they haven't got enough. And actually, you know, in the end we're all going to go, well, you did have enough, that, you know, actually. You've pretty well off compared to everyone else yeah and just oh love dc very <laughs> free i'm i'm on this number in v3 oh oh but it's horrible. the elbow bumping and this foot tapping oh just and anything foot quite bad, i mean i've sent all of these i mean most of us wouldn't want our messages put out in well, public right. but it's all just like it is all slightly to me maybe maybe one thing that david cameron could have been doing is lobbying on behalf of his children because when i interviewed him last year when he used to do such things um, he talked about how he'd really struggled with homeschooling and, uh, you know, trying to get his children to, to knuckle down uh, for their exams and all that sort of thing. And you've written your column today, Alice, about how I know it's hard to believe. It's very funny what you'd written about Gavin Williamson. But for some reason, you still believed him that it was all going to be all right this time round. Well, that's what's extraordinary is we know that this man had the worst record, really, doesn't he, of, of on education, from free school meals to telling schools to go back and then telling them they've got to stay um, to uh, the exams fiasco last year. And then this year, he said, it took a long time about it. It wasn't until February that GCSE and A-level students were told what was going on, but he told them their exams were going to be cancelled. And actually what has happened with all these students is that most of them are doing more exams than they would have been doing in a normal year, Um, which I find kind of astonishing that, you know, some of them are doing up to 40 exams this summer. And these children are completely shattered. The teachers are absolutely exhausted and the schools just don't know what to do anymore. They're all, you know, they'll get the blame in the end. They also know there's going to be massive grade inflation. So we had 13% grade inflation last year. I think it's going to be worse this year. Um, and then what do you do about it? Because you know, they'll have done all these exams, they'll have worked really hard and then they're told they're completely useless. And actually, even if you did get your A or A star, it's not as good as everyone else's A or A star in previous years because, of course, they were all cheating. Um, so I feel incredibly sorry for those you know, GCSE and A-level years. I think it's going to be a total nightmare again. I, I can't remember where, where your children are in the, in the school system, Robert. Are you, are you facing this again this year? No, I'm grateful that they, they both, they're both beyond that. They're in their early 20s. Yeah. At the university. So, uh, yeah, I'm grateful that uh, we've been spared that. No, I mean, I mean, Williamson is... I hadn't realised the thing about the uh, tarantula. We've uh, gone... <laughs> Education secretary who keeps a tarantula on his desk named after a Greek god who ate his children. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's just weird. That's sort of sinister, isn't it? I mean, I know the guy's useless and incompetent and untrustworthy, but that's sort of bordering on spooky. Well, maybe uh, he didn't know about the eating the children. That's what worried me is that, I mean, I thought at first I thought, oh, we've got an, well, a reference to Greek literature that actually 
this is good for an education section. But then you realise maybe not because actually, yeah, you know, it has like, actually read beyond the. You know, that's that's the yeah. thing with Gavin Williamson. You never really feel he reads beyond the headline that he actually knows what's going on there. And actually, is more interested in the headline. You know, the journalist writing a fun headline about is. Uh, mm. I mean, tarantula. Uh, I mean, actually, whip, I, I, whip as well. A whip. Yeah, exactly. He put his whip on the desk um, I mean, to show that he used to be a whip. He's got his... Tr- oh, yeah, the whole... Anyway. Yeah. Um, but actually, Alex, the thing that struck me reading your, your piece today, it's not just the GCSEs and A-Lord, but the school my daughter goes to, they've scrapped SATs. The government has scrapped SATs. SATs aren't happening this year. The school's doing fake SATs, and they're still doing all the build-up and hullabaloo of, uh, uh, of SATs week, putting all the pressure on, even though they're not even... I mean, SATs are basically pointless anyway for the benefit of schools um yeah. but schools put loads of pressure on and so this time around actually gavin williams said well don't have sats and so the schools recreated them anyway yeah well that's insane because the schools that haven't that i talked to are having a great time the children are actually learning yeah. something because they're doing it for fun so they're doing fun science which is a really easy year this year to do science because you've got yeah. covid you've got pandemics you've got you know scientists having been fantastic in britain then you know they're learning to read and create and they're not having to do all this extraordinary grammar and you know equations and really dull stuff in the sats so i think that's what they should have done with gcse's too they should have said look it's pointless doing gcse's mm. this year let's just scrap those two and make sure that children catch up with everything else and actually they're socializing again and learning to talk again and you know basically just getting back on track yeah, and the, the only the only point of the exam system anyway is to provide some sort of yardstick that everyone agrees is is fair and is a level playing field for, for to make a judgment about somebody's ability. And once you can't do that because some people are, are you know, haven't got a laptop or have been having to socially isolate, or somebody's it's happening different if you're in Carlisle than if you're in Canterbury, then there's no point. There's no the system falls mm. apart, doesn't it? There's no point doing it. Who hasn't got any worth? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the biggest that's a... problem I think for the country is that mm. they're making children do these GCSEs and A levels, and there's no comparison because schools are doing so mm. many different things. So some schools <laughs> aren't doing exams at all. Some schools are doing, you know, forty or fifty exams. Some schools are letting you do it at home in your bedroom. You know, then you just yeah. can't compare at all. Sometimes you can get your sister to do it. I mean, that that's the problem is we don't know who's doing what and how they're right. going to be assessed. And whatever happens, you know, the algorithm, at least in a way, with the algorithm, when mm. we all blame the algorithm. It isn't a person, so no one could feel quite as upset. Whereas with mm. this, every single teacher is going to get blamed if the child gets yeah. the wrong mark. Yeah. And you Which, feel really sorry for them. It does sound it's a total mess. It is a total mess. It's a great, I mean, you have to do you have to go some to, to make the algorithm popular, but he's managed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will say, yeah, bring back the algorithm. You know, all this forgiveness. And the other big problem is that I mean that with the exam boards, the exam boards are charging two hundred and twenty million quid. To mark and do exams, yeah. they're not actually marking, so they're not even getting out proper sense. questions. Yeah. And they've got to give the money back to those schools because you know some schools, the big um, schools with the big six forms, are spending a hundred thousand quid on these exams that they're not actually getting. Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson there, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Dish United Kingdom. 
Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Yeah, Disunited Kingdom, when we bring you uh, political news from the four corners of the UK to try and get a sense of what is going on. We'll talk about coronavirus uh, in a moment, but first uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at but how do we save the union if such a thing is desirable. Uh, let's uh, introduce the panel. Alexandra Rogers is the parliamentary correspondent at Yorkshire Live. Hi, Alexandra. Hello, hi. Uh, nice to have you with us. Uh, Katrina Stewart's the chief reporter at the Glasgow Times. Morning, Katrina. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. Will Hayward, Welsh Affairs Editor at Wales Online. Morning, Matt. That's an amazing, that's a new job title, isn't it, Will? That, I mean, that's everything. You're King of Wales, Welsh Affairs Editor. Oh, don't. My colleagues already hate me. <laughs> you're like, I think you're fine. That's my, my patch. Uh, and uh, Alison Morris, crime correspondent at the Belfast Telegraph. Hi, Alison. Hi, good morning. <laughs> nice to have you with us. So, yeah, I wanted to, uh, because, you know, the feature's called Disunited Kingdom, and to focus on the state of the union and all of that. There's been a lot of debate about it, given the election results <laughs> last week. Gordon Brown, former Prime Minister, for it is he he was on Times Daily Breakfast this morning uh, talking about his idea of, of sort of trying to bolster the union, uh, noting that unionism didn't feature in the Queen's speech, particularly yesterday, and uh, saying that the Prime Minister faces an enormous task in promoting the union. Let's take a listen. I think he also wants to have roads and bridges that are labelled British-built rather than Scottish-built. And I think he wants to bypass the Scottish government and Scottish institutions and really say, I'm going to do this as the British government, uh, no matter what the Scottish government think about this. His problem is that uh, most people in Scotland uh, who we're talking about as people he's got to win over feel more Scottish than British. And a competition between Britishness and Scottishness with him trying to push Britishness against Scottishness, I I don't think he's going to win. So that was Gordon Brown speaking this morning. Uh, Let's come to Scotland first then, uh, Katrina. Middle Scotland uh, was the big thing that uh, Gordon Brown was talking a lot about. So you've got very pro-independence on one side, very pro-union on the other, and he wanted to speak up for Middle Scotland. Is this this a group of people that exist as far as you're concerned? I think it's an interesting idea. Um, It's not something that uh, we've had a lot of discussion about in Scotland because (laughs) Gordon Brown was saying also in that segment that he thinks that the idea of independence and of discussions around evolution aren't quite as polarised as they're made out to be. I think, I mean, they are extremely polarised, but, <laughs> you know, but the problem is that Scotland, 
has a different identity from England of, of being more welcoming, more inclusive, more progressive, more alert to the problems of inequality. And where we are at the moment is we have a Conservative government led by Boris Johnson, who just doesn't reflect any of those qualities. And Gordon Brown also made the point that Boris Johnson criticised devolution you know he just doesn't think before he opens his mouth we've been told that he's planning to love bomb scotland over the next 18 months but to be honest that sounds more like a threat than a promise <laughs> yes so that's the, right that's the picture in uh scotland uh let's go to wales now will um the the state how is the union welsh affairs editor we put you in charge of union affairs as well now um where is how was the union viewed in Wales? There was obviously lots of debate before the elections last week about how Plaid might do and the sort of independence uh, push. But it, it, do people in Wales feel British before being Welsh or, or are they Welsh before being British? I think it very much depends on where you live in Wales. Um, I think the main takeaway you could have from the election is that people in Wales actually just love devolution. The, uh, uh, all the parties which were anti-devolution parties, UKIP, abolished the Assembly reform, were completely wiped out. Um, but also Plaid, who for the first time ever really put independence at the heart of their manifesto, actually saw themselves losing areas like the Ronda. And if they're ever going to make strides in Wales, they need to take Labour seats in the in the South Wales Valleys. But uh, they did get a much bigger majorities in their heartlands in West Wales and the northwest of Wales. So it depends on where you are, but what it seems to be, most people in Wales are just very keen on devolution at the moment. Well, let's stick with devolution, go to uh, Yorkshire uh, now, because obviously, we well, the um, new mayors in uh, Yorkshire, in West Yorkshire, isn't it? We've got the new, um, Tracy Brave is the new uh, mayor there. There's always been lots of talk about devolving to uh, Yorkshire, but uh, Alexandra, do people... I suspect I know the answer to this. People in Yorkshire consider themselves Yorkshire uh, first or British. What do they? How do they view the union? I think I think you're probably right there, Matt. There is a distinct identity for a lot of people in Yorkshire. They feel a, a, a strong loyalty to Yorkshire. I think they feel British as well. And I think uh, Northern independence is sort of a long way off uh, at the moment. But I think that the system that we've got with Metro mayors you know, has given people in the North, it's bolstered their, their identity and given them a taste of what devolution can do for their areas. And uh, you mentioned the West Yorkshire mayoral election there. One of the most interesting uh, results that we got from that was how well the Yorkshire party polled. So they came third. So obviously we had, we had Tracy Braben winning that race and then the Conservatives coming second, but Yorkshire party came third. So they beat the Lib Dems and they beat the Greens. So that was a bit of a, a shock That's interesting. that night. That's really yeah. interesting. I mean, I, I know from uh, a previous life, that it's maybe in Kernow in Cornwall, the sort of Cornish independence uh, party were always, you know, they got onto councils, they were just sort of part of the political furniture in Cornwall. So it's interesting that the Yorkshire party, which I think is much, much younger as a political force, isn't it, is, is, is having that yeah, sort of impact. Only been going for a few, few years or so, and I think this is probably the best running that, that they've had. And Obviously, they just want more devolution. They want a Yorkshire assembly. They think that the powers of the mayor um, don't go far enough, really. Uh, and how d does that sort of square with the idea of, you know, how, how does Boris Johnson go down in, in Yorkshire? If he's not going down very well in uh, Scotland and Wales, uh, how is he viewed in Yorkshire? Do people want that sort of extra devolution, those more powers, because they, they don't like what's going on in Westminster? I think they probably do. I think, you know, there is, I mean, we look at the Northern Independence Party, for example, they were critics sort of branded them as a, a nothing more than a social media movement. But I do think these parties speak to the electorate in some way. There is a disaffection with London and the South East that more, that more funding goes there, that they have better transport projects, whereas things just happen at a 
snail's pace over here. So, you know, I think Boris Johnson really needs to, to, to stick by his levelling up agenda if he wants to take people in Yorkshire with him. Right, so that's, that's the picture from uh, Yorkshire. Let's go to Northern Ireland now. Alison Morris at the Belfast Telegraph. I mean, the future of the, the union could be in the hands of whoever wins the, the, the DUP leadership campaign, leadership contest on, on Friday. What, what state's the union in Northern Ireland? It's interesting because this was the, the centenary. Last Monday was the centenary of Northern Ireland. This state is 100 years old, and yet unionism as a political force is in a bit of crisis. We're having two separate leadership campaigns for both the DUP and the Ulster Unionist Party. Um, we should know what the outcome of that is next week. And the DUP has a choice to make. Do they go with Geoffrey Donaldson, who would be considered the more moderate force of unionism? And I say that, you know, moderate in the DUP is not moderate by any other political standards. <laughs> These things you know, are all relative. We're not, we're not talking <laughs> about like, tree-hugging moderate, you know, we're talking, you know, moderate, you know, just slightly to the centre of the right. Um, or do they go with Edwin Plitz, who is it's sort of considered one of the old guard of the DUP, one of the Paisleyites? There's that. And then also, I think that, you know, unionism really needs to keep one eye on what's happening in Scotland, because the, the fact that now Boris Johnson is going to find it increasingly difficult to continue to um, reject calls for a second independence refer referendum. And once that happens, and we know that will happen, that's only going to then further increase calls for a border poll in Northern Ireland. So, you know, there's there's a crisis within unionism and they have to decide what way they want to go. I think that for too long, they've used the sort of politics of fear to try and get people like to vote. Um, and that isn't working. They now need to try and sell, I suppose, the, the positive aspects of the union and what the union has to offer, rather than just telling people to be terrified that if they don't vote for them, they're going to get a Sinn Féin first minister or other such things. Um, and some of the politicians seem to have recognised that and some of them not so much. Some of them are still, sort of, I suppose, digging in and it's very difficult to change that mindset. It is interesting that, and you're right, the sort of the fear factor doesn't always work. Sarah's just got in touch, Sarah in Derbyshire says, it's weird, I've always felt British over English, but during Covid, with Boris often speaking about rules directed to England only, I felt more English for the first time ever. And I suppose that's a sort of slightly interesting thing, is that the coronavirus pandemic has put, you know, Boris Johnson, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, Mark Drakeford and uh, Arlene Foster, as was, obviously, uh, on a, you know... Um, They've all had sort of equal billing, if you like, because they've all been making those decisions on their own, on their own patch, and and what they they said and did had uh, equal status. And so it's, it's interesting to see whether or not that that has an effect in uh, in England. And anyone got any bright ideas about what Boris Johnson should do if you do want to preserve the union? What would go down well in your patch that he's not currently doing? He's, he's not really, you know, um, top villain over here right now, given the fact that he told unionism there would be no sea border and, and told him there would be no sea border while the sea border was actually being implemented. Um, and I, I think that that's part of the, the crisis that unionism faces as well. They've been fiercely loyal to Westminster, but Westminster has not been, been you know, repaid that back to them. Um, and that's interesting in terms of how people view themselves here in terms of their identity. The Belfast Telegraph did a poll um, a, a week or two ago and it showed that in the 18 to 24 age group, that 47% of those people considered themselves Northern Irish and not British or Irish. You know, when my generation, people felt either strongly one way or the other, you feel very strongly Irish or very strongly British. But that's that's sort of dissipating as you go down into the younger generation. And there's, there's you know, I suppose that means there's an opportunity for unionism to try and sell Northern Ireland as, you know, as a, a safe and happy and prosperous place to live. But by continuing to block social change, that seems to be going against what that age group want. They may well be pro-union, we don't know, but 
they're pro-union and forward thinking and you know socially progressive and that isn't what we we have here that's a bit from the anyone else got any bright ideas about how to save the union I suppose uh, the best thing he could do in Wales is kind of acknowledge it exists. There's been some uh, real frustrations um, <laughs> uh, over the course of the pandemic. We've saw several times when England started to reopen for the first time back in May. And he said, drive as far as you want. And immediately every uh, head of Welsh um, police forces had to say, do not drive to here. You can't drive to here. We, um, there was great frustration back in November when Wales went into its fire break first. And there was no plans to extend the furlough scheme, which limited the amount of time that um, Wales could be um, in a fire break. And then as soon as England went into um, its own restrictions, the furlough scheme was extended. So um, and there's also a frustration that every time there's um, a budget announced, um, the Welsh government are scrambling to work out how it applies to them. I think um, I mean, the system itself is quite creaky, but uh, I think um, just an acknowledgement that. uh, this actually is actually the state of play, and this is how it's happening. Would be um, probably appreciated. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't know if uh, Alexandra or um, Katrina, you've got any bright ideas for saving the union. I mean, if I was going to say that Boris Johnson, how Boris Johnson might save the union, if I was going to say resign, I would only be being slightly facetious. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, fine well that his popularity in Scotland is through the floor. He's avoided visiting the country throughout the recent elections. And he's most recently sent Michael Gove instead. And, you know, Mr Gove might be a Scotsman. But again, I don't think Scots look at him and see themselves reflected back. I just don't see any hope under the current Conservative government for the union or for them making any sort of meaningful strides to improve matters. I suppose that's the thing, though, isn't it? Is it maybe the grand plan is just to hold off uh, doing any, any sort of referendum for the entire time that he's prime minister and hope that someone else can uh, can hold the union together uh, later on. Uh, right, I'll tell you what, in a moment we'll talk about uh, coronavirus, how uh, everything's opening up and are things looking more positive. Are there still four-hour queues for pubs, uh, as we discussed on the show uh, last week? And we'll also try and find some uh, lighter stories somewhere across the UK. We'll do that next. Matt Chorley, mid-morning on Times Radio. Yeah, we're doing United Kingdom. We speak to uh, four political journalists from across the UK. Before we come to your lighter stories... Uh, Alexandra Rogers from uh, Yorkshire Live. We ought to talk about, because we we had one by-election last week, uh, we've got another one coming. Uh, Where is it and what's going to happen? Well, it's in Batley and Spen. If you thought Hartlepool was a headache, I'm going to say that Batley's going to be a bigger one and a more exciting one, though I may be biased. So Batley and Spen, West Yorkshire, current well, was held by Tracy Braben uh, before she became West Yorkshire Mayor. But in taking that role, she has to stand down. And that's what's triggered the by-election. And this is really interesting because um, it's not your typical red wall seat. It's a bit more of a marginal, to be honest. So before, before 1997, the Tories held it. And this time around, they think they've got a real chance. Um, and they're going to throw the, the kitchen sink at it. And, you know, for, for Labour, I think this is really crucially one that they need to hold on to. Uh, if they do, it will allow... Keir Starmer to claw back, claw back some credibility with his with his voters, with his party members, members of his party. If he doesn't, you know, it may well be that foul na- nail in the coffin and, and prove that Boris Johnson and the Tories are just an unstoppable force. Yeah, it's well worth it. Good, a good pitch for us to keep an eye on what's happening in uh, Batley and Spen. And the current, how are things in uh, Yorkshire in terms of uh, the great unlock, uh, looking ahead to next week, drawing up your list of who you're going to hug uh, and all that sort of thing. Um, t- and tourism presumably coming back in a big way. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is going to be a big moment for Yorkshire. Obviously, part, parts of parts of the county have been in restrictions for, for the longest, really, since last summer. So I think everyone's going to be, be looking forward to meeting up in the pub. Apparently, it's not just in London where you can't get a table outside. I think that's going to, going to be the big one for people up there as well. Well, that's, very good. that's a picture in Yorkshire. Uh, Katrina, in Scotland, we had uh, Nicola Sturgeon confirming uh, the unlocking happening in Scotland. So what will you... But it, it, it struck me as quite confusing about how many people in different households could be in different places at different times. Has everyone got their head around what they can and can't do? I think people will definitely having, be having to write down a list of do's and don'ts just to make sure <laughs> that they're following it properly. But one of the biggest things, and you saw Nicola Sturgeon becoming really emotional about this yesterday was people from Monday will be allowed to hug their loved ones again. And, you know, some people are feeling a bit anxious about close contact, but it will be wonderful to have that human touch again. One thing that I don't think that we've been talking about enough, and I don't want to be a total Debbie Downer about the whole thing, is that once we move to level two, some uh, financial supports and legal protections end. So the temporary ban on enforcing evictions will cease. And I think there's, we're, we're going to start seeing a lot of problems with people who've had a difficult pandemic. Um, so there's really good moves coming next week. But also, I think there's some problems down the pipeline that we need to have more conversations about. That's a really interesting point. I suppose that thing is that if, if you've been uh, happily working from home, well, not happily, uh, working from home, you know, maybe you've saved a bit of money, you're looking forward to going out and about and going back to pubs and restaurants and that sort of thing. But if you have been relying on that financial support, you know, it could be a really uncertain time uh, that uh, lies ahead. Uh, Will, what's the picture in, in Wales in terms of the Great Unlock? Well, as somebody who, it's my birthday today and I've been trying to book a pub. Oh, I was saving that been... to the end, Will. But now you've got to oh, let the... Sorry. Oh, no, oh, it's fine. God. I'll cancel the balloons and the cake. Um, happy <laughs> birthday. Happy birthday. New job title. But it's all going on for Will. Um, but, you, but you can't... Have you managed to book anywhere to go out for your birthday, Will? We, we have managed to book somewhere. I'm just looking at the sky now, hoping that the uh, Welsh weather plays ball. But um, there is um, there is one issue we're, we're seeing in Wales is that uh, obviously from next week, we're going to have um, uh, international travel possibly reopening. And uh, the UK government have announced these vaccine passports, which are linked to the NHS app. But the issue we've got in Wales is to use that NHS app, you have to have a GP that is registered in, in England. And obviously, if you're in Wales, you don't have that. So because there's been the election in Wales, there's we are well, potential holidaymakers have no idea if they can use a vaccine passport, if they have access to that. The Welsh government have indicated they won't be announcing something until Friday. When I contacted the UK government about it, they did seem somewhat surprised that this app wouldn't work in Wales. So that maybe speaks to another thing we were talking about with the union. So that's been uh, something that's been a, a bit of a bone of contention this week, because actually people aren't going to know if they're going to have to quarantine and isolate going to certain countries until uh, 48 hours before they could potentially do that. Yeah, things just don't seem very joined up, do they? Alison uh, Morris in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, we were talking on the show last week about how people are queuing for up to four hours to get into a pub. Is it any easier this week? No, you really do. You have to, to get things booked or else you're wasting your time. I mean, I, I did have a table booked. And interestingly, as I was passing one bar, there was crowds of, you know, young people queuing up outside to get in. But there was um, a supermarket across the road and they all had big tins of cocktails and we're just drinking in the queue from the supermarket <laughs> because they couldn't get into the bar. So I think by the time you'd have made your way off the queue, they were probably going to be so pissed they'd been ready to go home. They drank that much, that much out of a plastic bag while they were waiting. Um, 
it's it's you know it's lively and I, I like to see the town open up again. Belfast City Centre was, you know, it looked like a much, much brighter and happier place to be after looking so miserable for so long. Um, our weather is shocking. Any of you, if you've ever been to Belfast, you know it just rains constantly. So that wasn't happening. And then the, the council decided all of a sudden to start enforcing um laws in relation to the smoking ban, however many years later, and telling people they couldn't have roofs over the top of their beer gardens and they couldn't have, you know, um a lot of built sort of like marquee type things, telling them they couldn't use those. So there's a whole big issue with that. We're supposed to be moving to inside dining, I think it's the 24th which a lot of people will will definitely welcome. Um this is the it's it's big coat weather, let's face it. And so you're going, <laughs> you're going out for you're going out for a drink in what should be the spring and bringing a winter coat with you, which is very strange. Yeah. When you when you when going out for the evening it's not you know a question of, you know, you gotta wear a nice top. It's if you've got your jumper and your coat and your blanket and your big socks on. And there's something particularly cool about the fact that um you're going to be able to go indoors at about the time the weather is improving, and it would be quite nice. It would be quite nice to sit outside. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that's that's bringing the union together. You see, everyone's having the same trouble. Everyone's having the same trouble. Before I ask for all of your uh, lighter stories, um, Alison, we should just touch on uh, uh, the inquest into the death of ten people in Ballymurphy uh, yesterday. They were found to be innocent uh, yesterday, and it, it was leading the news for, for large parts of yesterday. Does it explain for people who don't know? the significance uh, of what's happened in the last uh, 24 hours or so. Yeah, so I suppose that the backdrop to this is this was in 1971 and it coincided with the introduction of internment without trial by the British government, which caused widespread violence across Northern Ireland at that time. There were 10 people, among them was a, a Catholic priest who was waving a white flag as he tried to go and give someone the last rites and was shot twice, and a mother of eight who was also shot um, during that. There was quite horrific details of, of their injuries given out by the coroner. This inquest is, is set for 100 days. It heard over 150 witnesses, including 60 former um, soldiers who give evidence as well. The coroner yesterday set the two and a half hour <coughs> um, verdict, which <coughs> I had to listen to remotely because of COVID. But at the end, she said that all of the, the victims were entirely innocent and that there hadn't been a, a proper investigation at the time. For the families, the significance of that was when these events happened at that time, the um, media were briefed that these people were RA members and that they were gone men and gone women, and there was obviously no evidence of that whatsoever. The families have carried that stigma with them throughout their lives. There was 57 children left without a parent after three days of, of violence in Ballymurphy in, in August 1971, and those children felt the stigma of being, you know, it being alleged that the, their loved ones had been involved in terrorism in that day when they when they weren't. It's significant because as it was happening and as the coroner was delivering those findings, the Secretary of State was releasing a statement um, in relation to this proposed amnesty and what's going to happen with our legacy. And I, I know that um, probably at, at your side of the water, you hear the sort of very powerful veterans lobby in relation to historic investigations. But you have to remember there's 3,200 unsolved murders that happened here during the conflict and those people have had no justice whatsoever. The amnesty can't just apply to British soldiers, it has to apply across the board or else it would won't um it, it'll be illegal basically if it be challenged in, in the court to the British government tried to introduce it unilaterally, they can't. So it'll have to cover all murders, including those by Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries as well. There's some soldiers who sort of here, you know, Doug Beatty, who's trying to be the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, is a former soldier, and he said that creates a false equivalence between soldiers and terrorists. Um, what's really angered people is that there's been no consultation with us. We don't actually know. We know that the British government briefs sections of, of the media in England 
um, and there were stories that appeared in Daily Mail and the Express, but we really honestly don't know the bones of what it is they're proposing um, to put in place of, of what we have now, which isn't working. We know that. We need to find a better way to deal with legacy. But is a better way to deal with legacy, giving an amnesty to and um, leaving those people who are still really, really hurting and grieving without any hope of, of justice in the future. Um, I'm not sure that doing something like that without even consulting with them um, is the, the, the most empathetic you know, yeah. way forward for the British government. Alison, thank you for explaining that, because I think it's a really useful uh, sort of um, uh, explainer of, of what exactly is going on in Northern Ireland and, and how... Yeah, again, you know, if, if if the Westminster government only focuses on speaking to London-based newspapers, it doesn't necessarily go down uh, very well in other parts of the union. Um, I was going to ask for your lighter stories. Um, we've slightly run out of time, but I'll tell you what, as, Will, as it's your birthday and you've got the silliest story, <laughs> uh, obviously this week we had the story of the whale that came up the Thames and it didn't go terribly well, uh, but you've got a nicer animal story from Wales for us, Will. Yeah, so Tenby is a uh, massive tourist part of Wales, gets two and a half million visitors a year. It's obviously been a bit devastated over the last uh, uh, well, 14 months, but it's had a saviour, and that's Wally the Arctic Walrus, which has turned up thousands of miles from where it should normally be. It's just parked up on the beach, and it's been causing havoc. It's been putting, it's been laying on the lifeboat ramp, so it's had to be moved with a horn. It's capsized a dinghy. It's jumped on a fishing boat. It's joined, It's getting more surreal because it's been joined by two Eurasian otters um, <laughs> as well, which, which is utterly bizarre. And we've got people queuing to see this uh, walrus, and it's brought loads of people back into the town. So it's a, it's quite, um, it's quite a, a nice story to see this walrus just chilling out on a beach um, surrounded by loads of very excited Welsh people. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB online via smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 